Good morning once again. Take your Bibles, go to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4 is where our narrative continues as we've been working through the story of Esther, the story of Mordecai, King Ahasuerus, and the evil villain Haman. Esther 4 is where we pick it up this morning. Now, I know I'm not breaking any new ground by telling you what I'm about to say, but I think we all realize that we live in a very confusing world, don't we? From the dumb expressions of our highest elected officials to the tangled questions of a five-year-old, our world is confused, perplexed, we may even say. You know, the world tells you that if you were born a lesbian, you can't change that. It's the way you are. But if you were born a woman and now self-identify as a man, you can change that. The world tells me that as a white male, I just can't choose to identify as a Chinese man who lives in Shanghai. But I could identify as a woman and gain access to a woman's bathroom. The world tells me that I am supposed to celebrate that a woman is vice president. But that same world tells me that they can't define what a woman is. So I'm very confused on what I am supposed to be celebrating. Are you? I'm not quite sure what the celebration is supposed to be. And we live in a world that is confused. We live in a world that calls evil good and good evil. And the Bible told us that would happen. The question is, how do we as believers operate in such a confusing and perplexed world? If you remember back to our scripture reading just a few minutes ago, in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul helped us with some of this. He said, he gave us some, some comments on the standing of the Christian in the world. He said that we are hard-pressed on every side, yet we are not crushed. He says we are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We are, the word he uses, perplexed but not in despair. You feel like you live in a perplexing world that can't seem to make heads or tails out of anything that goes on. The world is perplexing and we live in it, therefore sometimes we also are perplexed. Perplexed by the depravity of mankind. Perplexed by what we should do about it. Our feelings like that are, are not much different than what we find at the end of Esther chapter 3. Last week, I left off the very last phrase of Esther 3, verse 15. We read in verse 15 that after Haman and the king have decreed upon Persia this horrific genocide of the Jewish people, that they sit down for a drink. Out-of-touch officials have made a decree based on a personal vendetta and they celebrate it. But the last phrase of Esther 3.15 is very telling. It says, The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Perplexed. The English Standard Version uses the phrase, the city was thrown into confusion. Can you imagine as news started to spread of what's going on there and the decree that's made, some of the Persian people were like, what? what's going on exactly? Where did this come from? 
I thought everything was going along fine. I didn't think there was a problem. And all of a sudden this, what in the world is going on? Other Persians maybe looked at this as an opportunity. Hey, we can get rid of a foreign people and I can probably pick up some extra loot in the process. So you've kind of got both sides here. The overall, the city is perplexed. What do we do now? I'm so confused. The other question I think we have to ask is, how did the Jews in Persia respond? Imagine that as word began to spread. Well, chapter 4 tells us that. I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter 4 so we can hear the story and this part of the story in one setting, and then we'll come back through and talk about it. Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Hester called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. How did the Jews in Persia respond to this command that the king and Haman had put together? Well, we see it in verse 3. It says, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Can you imagine waking up that morning and pulling out the Shushan Gazette? And reading through that and seeing the headline that says the Jews will be annihilated. 
maybe waking up as a Jew in Persia that day and scrolling through your, your news feed on your phone and saying, wow, this isn't going to go too well for us. They were perplexed, you might say. They were hard-pressed. They were persecuted. They were struck down because they were the target of all of this. Verse 1 tells us how Mordecai responds. Mordecai took the news very hard, and rightfully so. It says that he publicly tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he cries out bitterly, so much so that they won't even let him into the king's palace. In essence, he can't even go to work because of his response to this. I think Mordecai took it hard because he realized that his refusal to bow to Haman was the spark that lit the fuse, wasn't it? And it just burdened him. It struck him down, as it were. Well, verse four and five tells us that Esther's servants tell her what Mordecai is doing. Hey, that guy, Mordecai, the, the guy down there that you know, he, uh, he's, he's, he's doing all these things. Well, Esther, verse four, she sends him some new clothes. Hey, put these clothes on. Take that sackcloth off. We can't be having all that. Put these new clothes on. But Mordecai refuses them. He says no. And so Esther sends a trusted servant down, verse 5, named Hathak, to find out why Mordecai is acting this way. Interesting here. Why is Esther asking why? She doesn't know. As the queen of Persia, apparently, she knew less than the common person knew about the decree against her people, the Jews. Because she would have known, had she known the decree, she would have known why Mordecai was acting the way he was. But even her as the queen of Persia did not know what her people were about to go through. I think her posh surroundings had possibly sheltered her from the struggles that her people were going through on the street. So Hathak goes down, verse 6. He goes to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the gate and asks him, hey, Esther, the queen, wants to know what's going on. Mordecai, in verse number seven and eight, he tells Hathak about the decree. He tells Hathak about the money that was promised from Haman to Mordecai. He even gives Hathak a copy of the decree. You can see Mordecai's connections here. He knows about the conversation that's happened between Haman and Mordecai, about the money going back and forth. He even has a copy of the decree so I think his job had gotten him some connections for some inside information. And he tells Hathak here, this is what's going on. But I want you to notice the end of verse 8. Mordecai takes a risk. He gives him the copy of the decree. And then it says at the end, he sends Hathak back to Esther that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her he tells Hathak to tell Esther to go to the king and plead for who? Her people. Oh, wait, wait a second. He told Hathak that the Jews were Esther's people. Mordecai is spilling the secret that he was the one that told Esther, you better keep. Now, a couple things come to mind. Either Mordecai greatly trusted Hathak, maybe Esther greatly trusted him as well, and that's why he was the... Maybe he was even a Jew himself, could have been. Or Mordecai was willing to take a calculated risk 
Because at this point in the story, what do they have to lose, right? What do they have to lose in this story? So Hathak, verse nine, returns to tell Esther, your people, the Jews, are going to be destroyed in 11 months, and Mordecai wants you to go to the king and try to save them. That's basically what Hathak tells Esther. Esther then responds to the news, verse 10 and 11. Her initial response is fear. She says through Hathak, back, can you imagine being Hathak in this? He's got to go to Esther, and he's got to go to Mordecai, and he's got to get it from Mordecai, and he's got to go back to Esther, and he's got to go back and forth. What a, what a great job, right? But she tells Hathak, tells Mordecai through Hathak, I, I can't go. I can't go to the king unless he calls me, unless he invites me to come before his presence. And besides, I haven't been called for the last 30 days. It's not looking good, Mordecai. I, I don't really have much access. Besides, Mordecai, everyone knows this, and I thought maybe you would know this too, that if you go to the king uninvited, you may even be put to death. You don't just show up in front of this king. The historian Josephus tells us about the armed guards that would be surrounding the throne to execute any unwanted intruders. You don't mess with this king. The king, in essence, is inaccessible. An appointment with the king is by invitation only. Probably for security reasons. Probably for his own productivity. Probably just because he doesn't want to be bothered. Now, we know a little bit about Hazuerus because of the story we've read so far. We know that he is arrogant. We know he's crude. We know that he's very lustful. And so who is it that he invites to him? Who are the people that he extends an invitation to? Probably the ones that can do something for him. It's the powerful people that he says, come before me. It's the ones he likes. It's the ones who stroke his ego. The ones who can do something for him. Those are the ones that get the invitation to come before the presence of Ahasuerus. In other words, he says, don't come looking for help. Come looking to help me or else die. I want to take a moment here and do a comparison contrast between the king of Persia and the king of the universe, almighty God. In Hebrews 4.16, we are told to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now watch this. Whereas the lesser king of Persia says, don't come. Don't come unless I want you. The greater king, almighty God, says, come, I want you. God almighty is not bothered by us. He's not the selfish king, Ahasuerus. See, in our time of need, God says, come boldly. When we are at our wit's end, he says, come, ask for help. When we need mercy, he says, come and ask for mercy. He says to come, he says to, for us to come to him, not to help him, but so that we can find help from him. See, here's Esther. She's scared to go before the earthly king. And yet we are told in Hebrews to come boldly before the king of the universe, the heavenly king, the one who is actually in control. 
Well, how can we do that? How can puny little old sinful me come before an almighty God and expect to be heard, expect to have an audience in front of him? Because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm nothing. It's certainly not because of anything in me that allows me to go before God. It's not any righteousness in me. Now, Hebrews 4.16 told us, come boldly. The verses right before Hebrews 4.16, 14 and 15 say this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Who is that referring to? Who is our high priest? Who is it that makes intercession for us? Who is it that opens the way to God so that we can come boldly? It's talking about Jesus Christ. And through Christ, through Christ alone, what he has accomplished on the cross, he says, you have, because of what I've done, you have access now to God. That's incredible. There is not salvation. There is not access through anyone else, the Bible says. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. And by faith in Christ, we have access to the throne room of God Almighty. Ephesians 2.18, you see it on the screen there. It says this, For through Him, referring to Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Do you see the Trinity there? We come to God through Christ by the Spirit. That's the access we are granted. The Son, Jesus Christ, has opened up through his death, his burial, his resurrection, through belief, through faith in the gospel. He has opened up a pathway to God. The pathway to God. There's an anecdotal story that's told of a man during the Civil War who had an appointment with the President of the United States. He wanted to receive exemption from military service because of a tragedy that had happened in his family. He arrived at the White House for his appointment, but he was denied entrance and he was sent away. And so he went to a nearby park and sat there and just kind of bemoaned what was going on. A young boy came across him and remarked to him how unhappy the man was, and the, the man found himself just, you know, pouring it all out to this, to this young boy and telling him what had happened and telling him how he got sent away from the White House. Eventually, the boy said this. He said, come with me. And he led the dejected soldier to the back of the White House. None of the guards stopped them, even the, the generals, the high-ranking officials, just stood at attention and let the boy and this man pass through. The soldier was amazed by that. Finally, the boy comes to the president's office. And without knocking, he opens the door and walks right in. And the man walks in with the boy as well. Abraham Lincoln, standing there talking to the secretary of state, turns and says, what can I do for you, Tad? Tad said, Dad, this soldier needs to talk to you. Now, that may be a fictional story. It's anecdotal, but it proves a great lesson. We have access to the Father through the Son. That's how we come to God. 
See, the, the visible king of Persia, he says, don't bother me. Don't come. You come to me, you're done. But the invisible king of the universe says, come to me boldly. Though God may be invisible, he is never inaccessible. Note that. Though God may be invisible, he is never inaccessible. We can always come to him. Why? Because through Christ, we are his children. We have access to the king. The curtain is torn. The way is open. Use it. Travel that path. Why? Because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The door to God is open. Go through it. I don't think we do that enough. All that Christ has done for us and all that he has opened up for us to get to the Father, and then we don't take advantage of it. He says, come. Now, Esther's only hope here in the story is when she goes before the king, if she goes before the king, that he extends to her the royal scepter, that she is not killed. But is that a chance that Esther wants to take? Seeing that, you know, he hasn't summoned her for 30 days. Maybe she's thinking, I'm losing some of my charm. The king is no longer interested in me. If I show up before him, will he just dismiss me as nothing? Those are probably the questions that are going through her head. And she tells Mordecai, verse 11, Esther 4, she tells Mordecai, hey, it seems pretty impossible. I don't think I'm going to be able to go before the king. We're going to have to think of something else maybe. And then in verses 13 to 14, verse 12, Mordecai is told Esther's words by Hathak. Verses 13 and 14, Mordecai gives one of the most impassioned pleas in Scripture. Notice what Mordecai says here through Hathak to Esther. He tells Esther, don't get too comfortable, Esther. Verse 13, don't think, don't think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Don't think that if they kill all the Jews that somehow you will escape. They will come for you too once they find out. Don't be naive, Esther, and think that you're untouchable. Remember what happened to the last queen? She was gone like that. Esther, don't be so comfortable. Don't think they're not coming for you. Some scholars believe that maybe Mordecai has in mind here even divine judgment on Esther. That God has put her in this position for this time. And if she does nothing with that, then God himself may take her out. Could be. Basically, he's saying, Esther, you're not untouchable. Last week, we saw that Mordecai was a man of great conviction. Remember, he didn't, didn't bow before Haman. He wasn't willing to bow to an enemy of God's people. Here in verse 14, we see that Mordecai is also a man of great faith. Faith in the providence of God. Notice these opening lines in verse 14. Mordecai says, if you, Esther, remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Let that sink in for a second. Esther, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place. What he's saying is with you or without you, God will preserve his people. 
Now, Mordecai has no idea how that would happen, right? He has no idea how God will do that. But we see his faith because he's confident that God will. How can Mordecai be so confident? With everything that's stacked against him, with everything that's going on, how does Mordecai have faith like this? I think the answer is that he believed the promises of God. He knew them. He believed the promises of God for the future of Israel. See, Mordecai knew the Jews had to be preserved. God had to step in and save his people because all the promises of God throughout history had not yet been fulfilled in the Jewish people. So in the face of these current circumstances that Mordecai is just overcome by, he looks back on God's providence, back on God's promises, and says what God has said then is giving me hope for the future. He has to keep his promises. Now, now we know that God is faithful, don't we? He is faithful. We sang that song earlier, great is thy faithfulness. God always keeps his promises. We also know that God is sovereign, meaning he is in control of all things. Everything is under his dominion. I want to show you something here. The sovereignty and faithfulness of God always work hand in hand. The sovereignty and faithfulness of God always work hand in hand. See, see, when I make promises to my kids, my lack of sovereignty causes me to have to sometimes break those promises, right? Because I can't control the weather. I say, hey, tomorrow we're going to do this, and then the weather changes, and well, we can't do that anymore. I, I can't control a phone call that changes plans. But see, God doesn't have that problem. So when God makes a promise by his faithfulness, he has the sovereignty to do whatever is necessary to fulfill that promise. You see the connection? His faithfulness and his sovereignty always work together. So I think through this and I say, okay, Mordecai is thinking back on the promises of God. And he says, Esther, whether you help or not, God's still going to save his people. What promises was it then that, that Moses, or Moses, excuse me, Mordecai was thinking about? Maybe it was Genesis 12, 3. Remember what God told Abraham? He said, I will bless those who bless your descendants and I will curse those who curse them. Maybe Mordecai is thinking, Haman's got something coming. I don't know what it is, but God said, you curse my people, I'll curse you. Maybe that was one of the, maybe the promise was Genesis twenty two seventeen, that God told, said that Abraham's descendants would be like the stars and the sand in number. Maybe that's one of the ones he was thinking of. Maybe 2 Samuel 7, where God promised David that there would never cease to be a man. There would always be someone to sit on your throne, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who hadn't come yet at this point. So maybe that was the promise he was thinking of. Maybe it was the words of the prophet Isaiah, who would have just been a couple generations before Mordecai. And the prophet Isaiah says several times in his book, he says that there will come a Messiah from Israel who will rule and reign. Well, what happens to that promise if the Jewish people are gone? The promise then is also gone. So Mordecai here believed that God would be faithful to his promises. Did he know how God would do it? He didn't. But he knew that God would. We need some of that faith, don't we? 
We, we need a little bit of that. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you are going to do it. That, that's not faith in us. That's not faith in others. That not, that's not faith in politicians. That's faith in God himself. You say, well, what does God have for us as a church in the future? I don't know, but I know he's got something. By faith, I believe that he's got something for this church. How is God going to provide for next year's budget, the capital campaign, the growth of the school, all the, I don't know, but I know he's going to do it. How is God going to use us to reach the lost in this area with the gospel? I don't know exactly, but I know he's faithful and I know he's sovereign and therefore he's going to use us to do it. I don't know how exactly, but he's going to. You say, well, well, what if this person leaves or that person does that or the president decides this or tragedy strikes or recession hits? I, I don't know. But I know that God is not dependent on one person or one method to accomplish his purpose and his plan. God will come through. He always does. I think these shoeboxes back here are an example of that. When we set out to, to fill these shoeboxes, I, I honestly wasn't sure if we were going to make our goal. And with everything else going on, you know, we needed to raise $1,500 in order to, uh, to send them off $10 per box and owe me of little faith. God provided much more than we ever thought he would. When I came here a little over a year ago, one of the questions that I was asked most often was, how are we going to evangelize this area? How are we going to reach this community? And at that time, I had no idea what LifeWise Academy even was. But now that's one way that we can reach our community. And as we've partnered with them, we saw 35 first and second graders Tuesday, 48 signed up for next. We didn't know that was coming. We didn't know that was, that was an option. And here God has led us to that. God always provides a way. We just don't know what the way will be, but he always does it. Though God may be invisible, his faithfulness is inexhaustible. Though God may be invisible, his faithfulness is inexhaustible. You will never reach the end of God's faithfulness. God will do it. Remember that little chorus? I, I thought of it this morning, and so I wrote it on my notes here in very tiny letters, so hopefully I can read it. But that little chorus, that goes, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Excuse me. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, he will make a way. That's true. That's true. He's going to do it. That's what, that's what Mordecai told Esther. Esther, you can, even get, you can either get in on it, what God's going to do, or he'll bypass you and do it anyways. And that's, that is true for us too. Either get in on what God's doing, because he's doing it regardless. So get involved in what God's doing, 
or be left to the side when God still does it. Now notice the second part of Mordecai's plea here. End of verse 14. The first part is, Esther, even if you won't do it, God still will. But he also says at the end here that maybe God has put Esther in the palace as queen for just this time. I think Mordecai is starting to put some pieces together here, don't you? He says, maybe that's it. Did they expect for Esther to win the contest and become queen? They never expected that. And Mordecai is now thinking, he's looking back, because we can only see God's providence in hindsight. We can't see what he's about to do. We can see what he has done. It gives us confidence for what he's about to do. And so he looks back and he says, maybe that's the reason. This whole thing with Haman, this whole thing that, that's going on now, that's, that's, that's probably the reason that God let the, the young orphaned Jewish girl become queen of Persia. That's the reason. And he says that at the end of verse 14, he says, yet who knows? I love, I love this. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? Who knows? God knows. God knew what was coming. He knew what Haman was gonna do. He knew what a bum King Ahasuerus was. And he said, got my person right there. Who knows? God knows. He always does. Now Esther, the ball's kind of in her court. She has a huge decision to make. Will she go before the king or won't she? Mordecai's made this plea. Hathak takes it back to Esther, and Esther now has this decision. Esther is the only character in the story who's been given two names in the story. Remember that when we talked about Esther first? Her, her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Esther is her Persian name. So think through this with me. On one hand, she is Esther, the queen of Persia, with everything she needs at her feet. On the other hand, she is Hadassah, a Jew, part of a people who are about to be killed. Two names, two identities, Two worlds, one young woman. Sounds like the trailer for a movie, doesn't it? That's, right, that's where she is at this part of the story. What decision does she make? Does she tuck herself away in the shelter of the palace and just hope for the best with that group of people that, you know, I'm really not connected to them too much anymore. I'm just gonna kind of look out for myself and you know, what happens there happens there. I'll be all right. Or does she risk all of her comforts and even her life? to save her real people. Two names, two peoples, two worlds. Is she Hebrew or is she Persian? Which world would she live in? Which world would she live for? Before we answer that question, I want to point out that her predicament, not much different from ours, is it? Not much different from our predicament at all. As Christians, we also have two names. We were all given a name at birth, right? For me, Gerald Weiler. Some people say Gerald. Some people say Jarrell. It's just the lot I've been given in life. Some people, when I call bakers on the phone and order a pizza and show up to get it, they say, I don't, we don't have an order for you. There's no Gerald Weiler in the system, but there is a Joe Barber. 
that ordered the exact same thing that you did. And so my boys thought it was hilarious that we go home with pizza boxes with Barber written on the side of them. We were all given a name at birth, right? And we can't really do much about that one, can we? But we've also been given a new name. For Christians, we've been given a new name at our new birth, and that is Christian. We are a representative of Christ. We also, like Esther, we live in two worlds. See, we were born into one world, and then we were reborn into another world. See, see we, we live in this world, but Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in another world. Therefore, when we read something like 1 John 2, 15 to 17, it says this, do not love this world or the things in this world. If anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And this world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever in another world. Ladies and gentlemen, as Christians, we live in two worlds. But we can only live for one. That's a big difference. You live in two worlds, but you can only live for one. Will we live in the city of man or the city of God? Will we further the world's cause or will we exalt God's cause? Will we side with God's people or will we side with the world's people? And I hope for you that's a little bit of a light bulb moment, a realization, a moment of truth type of thing. Because for Esther, this is her moment of truth. This is everything comes at this point right here. What kind of person is Esther? Who is she really? Had she gotten so comfortable in her life that she really had lost her identity? If she compromised earlier when she went for the king for her own safety, would she just compromise again now for her own safety? Did she have the courage to stand against the tide or is she just kind of a go with the flow type of woman? Is she a courageous queen or a comfortable coward? I think we also have to ask another question, and that's this. Had God made the wrong person queen? Was there a better option? Esther, you know, which way is she going to go here? Maybe, maybe it was, no. God makes no mistakes. See, God put Esther there because that's exactly the person he wanted to be queen. It was no accident that Esther was the one that won the heart of the king. It was no accident that she was highly favored. Every fiber of Esther's DNA was constructed by God for such a time as this. This is her moment. Look at verse 16. Esther here makes her decision. She becomes the leader of her people. She, there's a little bit of a shift we see in Esther here. She's no longer the girl who just goes along. Instead, she start, starts to take ownership of the person God has made her, takes ownership of the role that God has given her, and she becomes the leader of her people. Verse 16, he, she says through Hathak to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
Esther tells Mordecai, she starts to lead here. She tells her, Mordecai and her people what to do. Have all the Jews gather together and fast for me for three days. Now, remember we said God's not mentioned here and neither is prayer. We don't see prayer mentioned here, but I guarantee it's implied. Because fasting and prayer synonymous with each other. So she says, basically, fast and pray for what I am about to do because our lives depend on it. In other words, she's saying this, watch. She says, go before the throne of God so that I can go before the throne of Ahasuerus. I'm not welcomed here, but we're welcomed there. So go there because there controls here. Isn't that great? That we go, we, we don't go here. We don't go here and ask for help. We go there and ask for help because we are welcomed there. She announces her decision in verse 16. She says, I will go to the king. She says she will risk everything, including what is most precious to her, her very life. And then the end of verse 16, she makes an intriguing statement. She says, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Is that fatalism? Kind of that, oh, well, here goes nothing, whatever. We'll see what happens. I don't think so. I, I think it's this instead. It's, it's a resolution to do what you can and leave the results in God's hands. What other option do I have besides going to the king? That's what I'm going to do, and God's in control of the outcome. It, it's, the same, it's the same way the three Hebrews acted when they were threatened with the fiery furnace. Here they are standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. They're, they're, they're uh, making the furnace seven times hotter than it normally is. And they say to the king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What are they saying? They're saying we are confident that God will save us, but ultimately if he chooses not to, that's his plan and we're not backing down regardless. We're gonna do the best we know possible to do and leave the results in God's hands. You know, that's exactly what we are called to do every day, every single day as believers. Do the very best you know how to do and leave the outcome to God. We are called to always be faithful, always faithful. And sometimes God will make us fruitful. Always faithful, sometimes fruitful in God's economy. So Esther has made up her mind, end of chapter four. Her people are depending on her. There's no turning back at this point. She's scared. She's faint-hearted. She's perplexed, hard-pressed, persecuted, and struck down. But she was not immobilized. See, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting in spite of the fear. And I think Esther's fearfulness to do what she had to do should encourage us because are we not the same way? Knowing what we have to do, knowing what God's called us to do, but there being a little bit of fear there. And Mordecai's reminder to Esther of God's faithfulness and his sovereignty is also a reminder to us. Mordecai says, Esther, by the sovereignty and faithfulness of God, you were created for such a time as this. When your people are in danger of annihilation, you're the one God wants there. And I wonder if we, on the other hand, were created for such a time as this. Right now, 
Right now is our time. We're not promised tomorrow. We can't go back and live in the past. Right now is our time. The time when the gospel needs to go out. The time when the world has no answers and is very perplexed. The time when the church needs to stand. This is our time. Carpe diem. Seize the day. By God's grace, as the Apostle Paul said, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because God is faithful and God is sovereign. About a year after concluding his presidency, Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech in Paris in 1910. It's famously known as the man in the arena speech. And he said these words that really should inspire us to realize that we are created for such a time as this. Roosevelt said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The ones who never got in the fight. You know, God has no sideline Christians. There are no bleacher bums in God's kingdom. The arena is calling, your time is now. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe you've been created and redeemed for such a time as this. Let's pray.